0: Yeah, you're pointing them well. Awesome. That's a lot of them. No wonder they need more space. Hopefully they're really good and tired when they come back to you, right? And and well-educated in the Word. That'd be the main thing. All right, Acts chapter 4, if you would join me, Acts chapter 4, Lord willing. Uh, we'd like to finish this chapter, hopefully, uh, as the desire. That's the plan. We'll see what the Lord has in store. I believe we... Hopefully, should be able to do that. Acts chapter number 4, just going through this book, again, taking it as it comes, um, kind of throw this out before we read our text. We'll do a brief review in a moment, but kind of looking forward, okay, kind of giving you an idea what's happening here. The last six verses in chapter 4 were too much to put on last week's message of those nine verses that had so much to do with prayer. And the next chapter, chapter 5, is too, too much for the first 11 verses of it to be coupled with these six verses. I imagine when the people, it wasn't inspired, but when the chapter divisions were, were made, I'm sure there was some struggle about, do we start chapter 5 after verse 31, or as they've chosen to do it here, because these verses, what we're going to look at this morning is really setting the stage For two things, kind of put this in the back of your mind. You'll need to do that because next week we're going to be preaching on Easter, obviously. So we'll take a break, I think, from Acts. Although there's lots of resurrection content in Acts. We'll see. I don't know exactly where the Lord's going to have us go yet. But uh, we will not be preaching on Ananias and Sapphira. The Lord would really have to write that in the clouds for us to do that Easter Sunday morning. Uh, But that should be the following two weeks. So these six verses are actually going to set up. For Ananias and Sapphira. Luke, Luke, our author here, is going to give us two illustrations of verses 34 and 35. He's going to give us a good illustration and a negative one, right, of, these, of, of two of the verses in this text. But because of what's happening in verses 34 and 35, it's actually going to set the stage. And this will make sense in a few weeks. We're getting there very quickly. It's going to set the stage for why we need deacons. I believe, I believe chapter 6 has to do with deacons. So this text... It's setting up for the first 11 verses of chapter 5, and it's setting up for the first few verses in chapter 6. So, before we read today's text, not very long, um, a few things in here, though, that we need to look at, and we need to approach it the right way. And I hope we'll finish today with the right approach to this, handling it correctly. But we need to quickly review last week. We looked at nine verses last week. Peter and John had been arrested. They proclaimed the name of Jesus over a lame man who was healed. A large crowd gathered because everyone knew this man was lame. He had been lame for his whole life for 40-some years. Peter preached to these people, and apparently many, and I mean maybe thousands, got saved. But the enemies of Jesus, who happened to be the leaders of Israel, the political leaders of Israel, came and arrested Peter and John. And they put them on trial, and basically the charge is this... How did you guys do that? Peter took the occasion, being filled with the Holy Spirit, to tell the 71-member Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, five powerful truths about Jesus, and he was not holding back, and it was very powerful. Their response was to threaten Peter and John and all the followers of Christ. No more teaching and preaching and declaring the name of Jesus. We want it to stop, or we're going to punish you. Peter and John responded by saying, we're going to continue to do that. We're going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus. Well, then we're going to punish you. Okay, so they left with an agreement. Peter and John left, got together with some Christian friends, their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they prayed. they like, what happened? And they shared what happened uh, as a result of that, and their immediate response to hearing persecution is coming, Their immediate response was to pray. We better pray corporately. They were so given to prayer. And so last week, we looked at four things. We noticed their exaltation of God in prayer. Lord, and again, not going to re-preach that, but this idea, you are sovereign even when it doesn't look like you're sovereign. You're in control. Persecution's coming. But we just, we acknowledge you first of all. And then we notice their supplication, right? Their supplication. They ask certain requests that are not the requests that modern Americans would have asked for. They pray, Lord, just make us more bold. They're going to punish us. Make us so bold we will keep preaching in the name of Christ. And then, Lord, meet our boldness by large crowds is the idea. Bring large crowds together because you keep pouring out your power to do healing and more miracles. The things they don't want to see any more of. We pray you'll do more of those things. And in verse 31, we notice the third thing. God responded to their request very powerfully, shook the building they were in filled them with the Holy Spirit, and the result was they went out in answer to their prayer, and they were bold in their preaching. And we left last week. So if you were not here last week, I don't say this every week, but especially if you were not here last week and you have not heard that message, not because of who's preaching it, but because of the content of it, we finished with our fourth point last week. There was like nine principles of prayer. There were like nine of them. That we pulled out like, wow, we can learn nine things about prayer. And if for nothing else, you need to hear that. And I, I plead with you, let's make these nine things part of our prayer life. And so that's how it left off. They, this group representing, no doubt, the church as a whole was filled with the Holy Spirit. And there they go out preaching boldly in the name of Christ, though they were told not to. That takes us to verse 32 to 37. Notice verse 32. This is a report card, okay? This is a, this, Luke, our author, is giving us periodic report cards about the growing church. He told us there was 120. They told us there were 3,000. They told us there were 5,000 males. You can kind of figure probably 20-some thousand people are in the church. Think about that. Probably 20-some, and it's growing day by day. And here they go speaking boldly. So it's grown even more by the time we get to verse 32. Here's the report card. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Feel that. 20 some thousand people in a brand new church. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said so that is going to result in part B of verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one had that mentality. No one said, it's mine. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him. Were. Now, obviously, there's exceptions. Doesn't mean their toothbrush is to be open game. Oh, sorry, got some paste on it. No, no, no. no you don't. We're using common... No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. They had everything in common. Wow, what a community. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus So in verse 32, we see a lot of unity. Verse 33, we see great power in the apostles' teaching, preaching, and testimony. And then what I'm going to play off, you've already seen the title, is the last phrase in verse 33. Because I believe it's kind of the summary. It, It explains why all this is happening. Luke writes, and great grace was upon them all. The whole church, great, great. Not just some grace, like God's great favor Unearned favor and benefit, his gifts are just being poured out on this brand new early infant weeks, if not maybe months old church. Great grace was upon them all. Like to what degree? Well, we've already heard a little bit of it in the first two verses. But now, verse 34. There was not, let this sink in. There was not a needy person among them. Why? For... As many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. The idea, no strings attached. Laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Can I kind of throw this in? That as any had need doesn't just apply to the dis- distribution as anyone had need. I believe that same phrase, carrying back to what we learned in chapter 2, very similar passage here, I believe that applies also to the selling of lands and houses. It, it was on an as-needed basis. So as need, oh, there's needs. The Lord leads someone over here. They sell some land. This one sells a house And they put the funds into this. And they laid at the apostles' feet. Verse 35 finishes. And and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then Luke gives us a good example. One example. Thus Joseph. Who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. Barnabas. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. Which means son of encouragement. A Levite. A native of Cyprus, that's an island about probably 275 miles away from Jerusalem, out in the Mediterranean Sea, a decent size, but an island. Joseph, we have like five or six pieces of information about this man. Joseph, called by the apostles Barnabas, that name means son of encouragement. He was a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him. And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So verse 37 sounds a whole lot like verse 35. It's just we have a name attached to that one specific illustration. So again, what I'm going to play off this morning is this phrase in verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. Would you notice first point this morning? We're going to combine two thoughts. Graced by unity. Graced with unity. And graced with power. How did the grace of God show up? This early church in its infant stage, thousands of them are actually graced with great unity and great power. So let's talk about that first thought. Look at verse number 32. This is an amazing text. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The early church had tremendous unity. Unity. Now, I wanna explain what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that instantly everyone had the same tastes and preferences and opinions on things. It doesn't mean that. They're still gonna have different tastes and preferences and opinions. What it means is in their heart, in their soul, in the very core of their being, where it matters the most, they're unified. They're impassioned. Their energies are going toward the exact same kinds of things. They're pursuing. They see their purpose as the same. They're unified in this way. In other words, there's like two or three things that have happened to all of them that unifies them. They all don't just believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They have all put their like faith and trust in him, which means they all have eternal life and they've all received the Holy Spirit. And all those things are so much in common that it just... Totally trumps any differences that they have so that they are just... A, they're of one heart, one soul in everything that matters the most. So I want you to notice what they did not have. What did they not have? They had no division. There, were no, there was no dissension among them. Church all around the city of Jerusalem. Over 20,000 people. No dissension. No division. Let this, let this hit you. They had no classes. Among them. There were no high class Christians and low class class Christians, no second middle class. They that there were no little clicks. There were no clicks. It's no like this is our group and this is always gonna be our group. No. New people are constantly being brought in. It's not always, well, all the new people, you need to start making your group. No, they just keep expanding. They had no, no cliques. They had no rivalries. There were no rivals. What a great church. And this is what you'd want to be part of. Why is this happening? Again, I'm be first start with the basic. Because God is pouring out His great grace. This church was graced with unity. But if you'll write this down on a practical note, the early church had great unity because the things in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 had captured their attention. They were all on the same page. As you're writing that note, I'm flipping back over one page to Acts 2. Look at verse number 42. It's not on your screen. I'll, I'll read it. We learned this. The early church and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted. They were pouring themselves constantly. You say, what is this apostles' teaching? It's what we now call the New Testament. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So they're fellowshiping with each other. They're living their lives together and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This early church is so encaptured and passionate about learning true doctrine and praying together and living their lives together and fellowshipping together. There's no dysfunction. There's no dissension. They're unity. They're growing closer and closer together, and love is just spreading throughout. What a great church. That unity, I want to propose to you guys, is so valuable. I don't think we appreciate the concept of experiencing the unity of brotherhood and sisterhood as described here until you don't have it anymore. That's probably when I'm thinking of Proverbs chapter 15, verse 17. It's not a quote, but you ought to go read it. It talks about how that a simple meal of herbs, like just honestly, it's not even like lots of fruits and vegetables without meat, Just a simple meal of herbs, maybe like a little bit, just a little bit of vegetables, but probably like a lot of flavored water. Oh, we got somebody else coming? Add more water to the herbs. A simple meal of herbs, a dinner of herbs with love in that group is a far better experience and a memory, better memory, than having many side items and a fattened calf The the best atmosphere, the best food, but where there's strife and hatred. This one totally outranks the other. Now, to relate, some of you are like me. You ever been to a fairly nice restaurant? I mean, a nice restaurant, the food is great, the atmosphere is great. And you you can't help but notice that there's a couple at a nearby table. And you feel the chill coming your way. I mean... There are the only words being spoken are the words spoken to the waiter or the waiter. Have you ever been there? You ever seen that? And it's like, it, and, have you ever been that couple? Don't raise your hand. I have. In that moment, you would probably say, Go to the dentist, get a filling, this meal. I think I'd rather go to the dentist. It's just like, this is no good, this is no fun. But unity with hardly anything, just the simplest of poor meals. But where there's love, that's a whole lot better than the other. You can have a feast over here, but if there's contention and strife and anger and hatred. Well, the early church had a tremendous church. You know what I'm thinking of, and I don't have anybody in mind. But I'll promise you, our country, all across our country, there are pastors today that now oversee large congregations, large, bus- large budgets. And they've thought in in prior years all how they would love to have a larger congregation and a much larger budget. But in their heart, now that they're in it, and I'm not saying all churches with large budgets and large attendance. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying there are some, if they were given the choice, they would gladly go back to a time where they had a smaller budget and a smaller congregation where there was love and unity because they don't have it now and they miss it. This is valuable. This is extremely valuable can I offer to you this idea? You have the church in Jerusalem and you have Anderson City. Probably, if and only God knows, the number of true Christians in Anderson City and the Jerusalem church at this time probably had comparable numbers. They would not have had the church buildings back then in Jerusalem, but they would have been in house churches all around town like we have church buildings and congregations, in various denominations, under the umbrella of the name of Christ. I ask you today, does the church in Anderson County have unity in it? No. The modern church has lost a lot of the unity that is being described. And we wonder, why? What happened? Well, there's some very practical reasons. False doctrine has made its way into the church. Letting spiritual wolves in sheep's clothing set the tone and take the lead. That has caused a lack of unity within the church. A focus on human traditions and culture and making those the most important things has led to a disunity. And by the way, the Lord even alluded to, there is a time to divide. There must be some division. That was in John's gospel or one of his epistles, I believe it was. So there is a time to split off, but it's because of false doctrine and focusing on the wrong things. That has crept in. Unforgiveness, I mean, to genuinely release the debt That has crept into the church in massive waves. What's become very popular in the church now, the modern church, as opposed to what they had in in this early stage, is there's so many church options, people get offended, and their response is just go and hop to another church. Never stop and stay and actually get something right. I'll just pack my bags and go over here. And what they're doing is taking a lot of bags. A lot of baggage, and they take all their poison, they go over there. And it won't be long, they'll find a problem over there, and then they're going to hop to that. You know there are people in Anderson County, they've hopped all around the county, three, four, five, six different congregations, and never getting anything right. Well, the early church had unity. Today, we don't. We lack it. and We've lost a lot. Why? Because in a lot of places, there's no longer a focus on the apostles' doctrine. There's no longer a focus on Prayer, there's no longer focus on loving each other and fellowshipping together and praising God as we see in Acts chapter 2 verse 47 and being focused on the mission of the Great Commission. No longer is that prevalent in a lot of churches and disunity has made its way. So I want to ask us this morning, and only you know the answer to these questions. Are we all here this morning of one heart and one soul? Are we here this morning of one heart and one soul? Would that be said? We're much smaller than what's said here in this verse. Can it just be said of our group here this morning that we truly have to ask another question? For that to be true, first off, are we all, are we all in this room truly saved? Is every person truly born again? Are you saved? That's where you got to start. Am I truly? Is there an unsaved person? If there's an unsaved person in the room watching online, when will you put your faith and trust in Christ? When will you acknowledge and just say, God, I'm a sinner, but I've heard the gospel that we sang about the simple gospel? Jesus died on the cross. It was for me. It's enough. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I take it. I'm resting in it right now. Come, take possession. You're the Lord of my life. Take possession of me. When are you going to have that? Don't hold us back. Are we all of one heart? Are we all truly born again? Did we all check your heart? Did we come here today, all of us, to worship the Lord? Did we all come to hear from Him in His Word, and when we do, to respond obediently to the Lord's Word? And what the Holy Spirit teaches. Is there anyone that has come for any other reason? Has anyone come and like, those things are not on my radar? Is there anyone in the house that your heart is not clear toward a brother or sister in Christ. And you need to go have that difficult conversation with them. Are our hearts clear this morning toward each other? Has anyone come this morning out of a habit? It's Just a habit. It's Sunday. I'm supposed to go to church. Is that any of our hearts Has anyone come to further your agenda? Or maybe over there, I've got some power there. Has anyone come, check your heart, to like maybe showcase your abilities or your talents? Again, that's my little power area. I get to go there. Check your honest heart. If any of that is in you, then that needs to be confessed. Because that's going to keep us from being of one heart and one mind. So I'll say this. We've been here six years and eight months. And I can confidently say, for that amount of time, it's not perfect. I'm not saying it's not perfect. But God has been good to us here at Grace View. We have had great unity. And that is a gift. And I don't take that for granted. I don't. I don't take that for granted. I hope you will join me. Pray, God. Keep us unified in a growing, growing, increasing love for you, a growing, increasing love for your word, and a growing, increasing love for each other to where we actually like each other and spend time with each other, and a growing desire and love and pursuit of the Great Commission where we're out making converts and, by your grace, turning them into disciples of Christ. Lord, just keep growing us in those unified things. That would be an awesome request. Verse 33, to get the second part of this first point. And I played a little mental game with myself, right? I felt better if I only have two points rather than three. So we cheated and made two points within the first point. That's all right. Made me feel better. And it saved a little space on your handout. All right. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So catch this. How is God's grace coming out in this, in this new church? God's pouring out his grace and great power upon the the apostles teaching and preaching. So here's what's happening. They're out straight up defying and disobeying the Sanhedrin, the government of the land. Not preaching that message, but they told him. We're going to be disobeyed. Do you remember why they said they would disobey us? Not just because they have rebellious hearts. We will be teaching and preaching and proclaiming the name of Christ. Because God told us to. We can either obey you or obey God. God told us to proclaim the name of Jesus. We will be obeying God. And by the way, we can't help it. We can't help. We're going to. We couldn't stop if we wanted to. So here they are, teaching and preaching in the name of Christ. If you're taking notes, write this down. There's several things about the apostles teaching and preaching that are stated in verse 33. They're Teaching and preaching is dominated, first of all, it's dominated by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's... Have you ever heard a preacher? And some of you may think, I'm that. I hope I'm not that. But have you ever heard a preacher? It's like, if you hear... him. Three times, preach three times. They are somewhere in there. They're going to find their favorite subject to preach on. They're always going to, and you might get a little whiplash in the sermon because they're going to make it over to their favorite thing. That's a little bit of what you find with the apostles. It's like they're preaching and they're teaching, but they're constantly flavoring it with this idea. The main thing they are preaching is what we're going to preach on next week, and that's why I'm not not going to spend a lot of time on it today. We're not diving into the resurrection of the Lord. We're going to do that next week. But this dominates their preaching. Here's your note. Their testimony, their preaching, was dominated by Jesus' resurrection. And it was so powerful. Again, it's powerful because God was pouring out His grace on their teaching and preaching. But on a practical level, it was powerful for several reasons. These men are not just spirit-indwelt men. They're spirit-filled men. And they're not just spirit-filled men. They're spirit-filled because they are men of prayer. So they're spirit-filled. They're powerful in their preaching because they're spirit-filled. And they're men of prayer. And they have this unusual zeal and passion that only really comes from giving firsthand accounts of things. Notice verse 33 as you're writing that note. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus they're spirit-filled, they're prayerful, they're not just powerful public speakers who have no private prayer life. They preach and they have a private prayer life and those are combined and it's very powerful because they're very zealous and passionate. And their zeal is such that it really only comes from a person that gives first-hand accounts of things. All of them. We're never given details of, of the other guys teaching and preaching, but we know you could go through each of them. And they could go through the first time they saw Christ alive after His resurrection. Peter and John no doubt could say, We ran to the tomb early that morning, and we talked with an angel, and the tomb was empty. All of them could say, we were in that, all except one. We were in that house on the Sunday night, and all of a sudden, the doors are locked, and Jesus appears inside, and Thomas would have to stand and go, yeah, I wasn't in that meeting, but I was in the next one, and he came back, and he singled me out, and he told me to come touch his hands and feet, and I told him that you are my Lord and my God. And they each are just giving their version. The first two of them are talking about being on the road to Emmaus and how they didn't even know it was the resurrected Lord until after they sat to eat. And then he prayed, and all of a sudden their eyes are open to see his hands. And then he's gone, and they could share that firsthand. They could talk about how they were fishing up in Galilee, and they noticed on the shore there's Jesus, and they go up and they eat with him. And Peter could say, He and I had this private talk. Can't tell you about it right now, but we'll, you'll hear it later on. And that's in John chapter. Each, each one of them just giving a personal testimony. So before we go to point two, I want to ask you these questions. Answer within yourself. What do you have in your life that you can share from a first-hand perspective that only you can tell? it? What do you have? You. Does everyone in here, do you have a a, a time, a moment, an occurrence where you put your faith and trust in Christ. Y'all have heard mine over and over and over. If you don't know it yet, I'll I'll share it with you. I, I was nine years old. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that now. It's 1979. I was at a Bible camp. The preacher's name was Ed Yeoman. I, I, again. Do you have your version of that? Can you, from a genuine, passionate Like, I know I've experienced this firsthand account. Can you say how God meets you in your prayer time? Can you, like, itemize, God has answered this prayer of mine? Not bragging on yourself. God has answered this. Can you say from firsthand experience, not just something you heard on the radio or a podcast, you read in a book, or caught here in life group, nothing like that, like, from first-hand experience where you had your Bible open and God showed you something out of the text and made it just jump alive in your life. And you're so passionate. Do you have those things? Is there a sin that used to just whip you all the time? But by God's grace, you can say, God has given me victory over that. If you have those things, I want to implore you, tell it. Tell it. Only you can tell it. Don't just enjoy it. But tell it. Number two this morning, and the main point of our text is found in verse 32 and then verse 34 to 37. So we're talking about grace. This church is graced. How are they graced? With great unity. There was great power on this church. But now they're graced with loving generosity. Number two, loving generosity God has poured out on this church. That's one of the forms of grace that He's given. So for the next few moments, here's what I need to do. I need to lay some background, a little bit of context. So I am invite you, put yourself in that context for us to really appreciate what's going on in our text this morning. So let me reread the second part of verse 32. Then we'll skip down to 34 and read 35. Okay, can we do that? Look at verse 32. Hopefully you have your Bible open. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is what's happening in early church. No one said... These these are mine, but they have everything in common. Verse 34, the result. There was not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So these are the things that are taking place. Would you look at verse 34? Listen, you, you see this with your eyes. There was not a needy person among them. That's an amazing statement. So let's hit some context. At this point, there was not one single needy person in the Jerusalem church. At this point. But do you know what time we're looking at? I haven't hammered home a timeline, but do you remember enough about this timeline? Do you know kind of where we're looking at? We're looking at A.D. 30 to 33. A.D. 30 to 33. So at this point just a few weeks and months in, there is not a needy person. You say, well, I'm assuming it stays that way. Actually, I want to propose to you that seven, eight, 10, 12 years later, this statement will no longer be true. There will be needy people in the truth. But at this point, there are none, and we have a reason why. You say, wait a minute, why will there then be needy people? Is it because the early church is going to get away from this practice? That is possible. Y'all do know that in a 12, 10, 12, 14 year time period, churches can change in their culture. You ever been in a church like you ever been there? Does that resonate? You ever been in a church and this was happening and like five years later, like man, it's just like a whole different thing. Whole different. It could be for better, it could be for the worse. So maybe there was some change, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, there were two things. Do y'all, some of you already know what they are. What ends up moving them from where there's not one needy person to where there's going to be many who are in poverty famine chapter number 11 it's coming a real famine is going to hit jerusalem and really the known roman empire at that time it's going to hit the jerusalem church hard and the other it's coming it's persecution persecution is coming in chapter number five the sanhedrin is going to come against all the apostles It's coming in chapter number 7. Stephen is going to be martyred. It's coming in chapter number 8. This guy named Saul of Tarsus is going to ferociously kick off this horrible persecution against the church. Chapter number 9. This Saul of Tarsus is still breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He's on his way to another town hundreds of miles away. He's going to go persecute the Christians up there. Thankfully, God has another plan for that guy on the way. Persecution's coming. Chapter number 12, James. You got Peter, James, and John, one of the inner circle three. James is going to die in chapter number 12 because of persecution. He's going to be a martyr. So persecution's coming, famine is coming, things are going to change. But at this moment in time, there's not one single needy person. More context. i never heard this, but I read it in more than one place this week. It was new to me, but I can imagine. Some commentators on the book of Acts, now catch what I'm saying. They look at this, what's happening in these verses, this this second point this morning. This was a big mistake by the church. They actually believe this was a big mistake. They should not have done this. And they think the reason the early church did this is they had a false belief and it cost them. They say their false belief was they believed that Jesus was coming back any moment, he's coming back very, very soon. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Therefore, we have these needy people in the church. Land is not that valuable because in the kingdom, it, it won't matter. So let's just liquidate all of this. And boy, here's, here's their teaching. It backfired on them and they really paid a price. And it ended up leading a lot of them into poverty where maybe so many of them didn't need to be led into. But they made a big mistake. Is that true? Could that be true? I ask you, is that the tone of this text. Like, boy, they really blew it. They loved each other and shared. That's not the tone of the text. The tone of the text is two words. Great grace. Joseph, called Barnabas, is not brought in as a as a fool. He's brought in as a good example of something. So we're not going to believe that, though some honestly do. So now we need to ask a second thing. Here's, Here's another context. Why are people having to sell their houses and lands? This is drastic. Why is this having to happen? So now we rewind back to chapter 2. We're not going to turn there. I'm just going to revisit something. If you were with us at the end of chapter 2, I'm going to give you three possible reasons why there's poverty that needs to overcome. This is a drastic step to do this. Number one, poor people are coming to Christ. They're poor, and then they're not poor. And again, eternal life is a great motivation. There may have been some in Jerusalem going, that's great, but their people aren't poor. I'm joining up with that group. They take care of each other. Okay, I'm not saying that happened. But you had poor people who were coming to Christ and... In our country today, when poor people have needs, our country has money set aside and it is available. And we want to be able to steer. And it's real. And we want to be able to steer people toward that. You say, well, Jerusalem, Israel should have had that. They did. But remember who's in charge of that treasury money for the poor people? It's the Sanhedrin who's told people not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. And so they're going to figure it out pretty quick, I'm assuming. Yeah, the reason... Oh, you've come to Christ, and you've come to us for some of the treasury money. You can forget it. You're a follower of that man who called himself Jesus. He's not the Christ. We oppose that. You're not getting any of the money. Quick question. Second thing. How many of you in here, you have ever worked for yourself? Raise your hand. You've ever worked for yourself? Kind of raise your hand up, right? When you do that, don't you need people to buy your products and services? You need that. That's how the company makes its money. You can imagine in this culture... As persecution is going to start growing, Christians are going to start being known as followers of Christ. And some others, no doubt, are not going to renew their contracts or they're not going to buy their goods and services. And that's going to lead to more poverty. But I think the first one and this third one are the main reasons why such drastic measures are having to take place. Here's the main, probably one of the main ones. I want you to picture, go back in time. You live far away from Jerusalem like you do now. Let's say you're a Jew, and you save, and you save, and you save. And you make this long journey to Jerusalem. And while you're there, you hear the gospel, and you become saved. So you go from being Jewish to now being a Christian, and that's the only church on the whole planet. And rather than go back home, you just stay there and you're absorbed into that new body of Christ. But you don't have any funds. You don't have any money. And so there's this huge influx of people who came to Pentecost and they were saved by the thousands. And now we've got all pitch in. We've got an emergency. So poverty has struck, but the church is answering by taking drastic measures. But great grace was upon the church. How? How was God's grace being poured out? And I want you to think. I want you to make a little list. Again, if it was a Wednesday night, I would give you time. How does God's grace come into our lives in specific ways? Like very, very specific. It is the grace of God. It's the Unearned gift of God when He gives us this. Obviously the biggest one, eternal life, forgiveness of our sins. Material possessions, healing physically, financial blessings, It's the grace of God when you open your Bible, like I alluded to a while ago, and you're reading and you've asked the Holy Spirit to teach you, and all of a sudden, truth starts standing out to you in the Word of God. It is the grace of God when you pray specific things and God gives that to you. It is the grace of God when you ask the Lord to use you in in your service to Him, and He empowers you to serve Him in ways that you never could on your own. It is the grace of God when you go to Him about some sin that has been whipping you, but you ask Him to overpower that, and He gives you victory over that sin. Those are, that's all the grace of God. That's the grace of God. But if you're taking notes, I want you to write the unique version of the grace of God that was poured out in Acts chapter 4. And it's a, it's a grace that we don't normally think of as the grace of God, but it was. Write it down. In Acts 4, part of God's grace came in the form of giving people generous hearts like God's heart. That's the grace of God. When you come across a person that has a generous heart, that's because God has given them the gift of a gracious heart. From early age. I mean like early age, at least by the time we're two, we learn a word and we start using it, and it's this word, mine, right? So much so that when Mike was teaching about parenting, this came up, like, yeah, my toy, that's mine, mine, and, and we we'll usually go even beyond the bounds of what is actually mine. What's yours might be mine, if I'm bigger, if I'm bigger than you, that's, my, that's mine now. So we, we're, we have this natural inclination that these things are mine. When y'all read verse 32, 34, 35, y'all do understand, like, that, that is not natural. That is unnatural what has taken place, how people are responding. What happened is that God's grace came to these people in an unusual way, Where they stopped seeing certain things as mine. In fact, this morning, there are natural people in this building. There are naturally thinking people in the building right now, in this room, and here's their thoughts. I hope it's not you, but there are people in this room. This honestly is your thought. That's my money. That's my money. That's my house. That's my car. That's my car. That's my truck. That's my land. That's my property. Those are my kids. This is my company. You know how much I put it? This is my business. This is my company. This is my body. This is my body. I'll do what I want with my body. And then along comes God, graces a person, and they totally change. This is His, this is His money. This is his money. This is his house. This is his car. Those are his kids that's been in my possession. I'm responsible. He's made me a steward of this. That's his piece of land. That's his house over there. This is his body. This is my body. This is his body. And everything flips. That is a revolution. That is a grace revolution. so unnatural. In fact, we have two versions of such a... And I'm, by the way... I'm not, I'm going to compare a little. I'm not pitting. I'm not, I don't want to lessen either one of these. But they are different. Can we agree on this? Look at verse 32. Look with your eyes at verse 32. Do you, do you hear how unnatural this is? The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The idea is so much so. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Like that's, that's not Normal. To just let other people, other believers have access to your stuff. To share, to borrow, to use your stuff. That's an amazing thing. I wish I had more time. Just stop and we could just meditate on what that would look like. Like like exactly what would that look like? Everything you own. Again, not your toothbrush. And not certain other... Again, I won't go into that. I I don't want your mind to go certain ways. But obviously... In certain shareable things. You need to borrow that? You need to use that? Yes. Have it here. It is technically mine, but it's ours. It's God's. You need it? Yes. Use it. What a great moment in the early church. But guys, look at verse 34, 35. Can we agree? This is like a whole other level. Not only were they doing that, this stuff that I own, you can borrow, you can use, But then verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses. Obviously, this is not their primary house. These are secondary things. Those who were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. This is a whole other level. It's one thing to share, and you can borrow and use. But then there's this. I have this property or this house, and you sell what is yours not just to liquidate the funds to go into a ref- retirement fund. Got to do it at some point anyway. I'm not going to use it. So I'm going to liquidate it, put it over here. And not just to put it in some savings account or dump it into the checking. No, this is going to go into some other fund that other people are going to be pulling from. And then it's gone. I mean, it's gone. And you don't have what you used to have anymore. And that might have been a little bit of your security blanket. This is next level. This is amazing. This is so Unnatural. Why would they do it? William Barclay writes the following They had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. It seemed to them unthinkable that any one of them could have too much whilst another had too little. They cannot imagine over here these people, they need this. They're away from their home. They got saved. They came for a feast. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't have to have this, so I'm going to sell it, and I'm just going to give it, and as needed, the apostles will make distribution. This is very radical. This is a grace revolution. So, quick thought on verse 32. I need to clarify, because we did this back, a couple of months back when we were in chapter 2, not just to repeat, but to clarify would you look at verse 32? Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Had everything in common. Could you picture uh, this afternoon, you got a boat in the backyard, and here I come with my truck. Hey, Pastor Jeff's here. What's he doing? Barn your boat. Says who? What in the world? Can you give me the keys? Uh, no. No, what are you doing? And maybe you're sitting here, oh, I like you, Jeff. Maybe I will let you. Okay. But no, somebody else. And we just... And so some will hear this, that last line in verse 32. and like, wait a minute. They had everything in common. This sounds like a, a communal situation. And some have proposed this as communism. So for clarification, we know this is not communism for two reasons. Do you remember them? We know this is not communism. This is communism. See, the Bible's for that. It's not communism for two reasons. Number one, all of this giving is purely voluntary. Totally voluntary. No government officials and no church leaders are making it mandatory to give to this. These people are doing it because they want to. It is not mandatory. Second reason, people still owned private property. I'm looking at verse number 34 in the middle for as many as were owners of lands what do you mean they're owners of lands? I thought when they got saved the church absorbed everything no, on an as needed basis when the need was there the Lord moved some and they owned it, it was their private property, well in communism you don't have private property, and in communism the government tells you, and in this case there were no government or no church leaders demanding remember this, if this was mandatory then what Joseph called Barnabas is doing would not be seen as special. Everybody would have been doing it. But he's put forth as a good example of many others. Quickly, verse 35. Look at verse 35. So they liquidate their possessions. They laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you see the attitude? I'm not going to dig in here. I'm just going to throw it out. Their attitude is, this money has been liquidated... And they laid out the apostles' feet, no strings attached. There was trust toward their spiritual leaders. Had to trust their spiritual leaders to spend it wisely. So I glean from that, when I give, that should be my attitude. And I also glean from that, those who make any decisions and discernments toward where God's money is allocated need to be trustworthy. Trustworthy. The people making decisions on where God's money is going to be spent need to be trustworthy. People who spend God's money, we all need, and I'm in that position, we need to remember, we are going to give an account to God for how we spend His money. This week, got out my church credit card, I made a $75 online purchase, and I am going to give an account to God for how I spent His money that you gave. And I don't normally spend that. But I'll tell you, I'm real excited about that money. And I'm ready to give an account because I believe it was the right thing to do. And I want God to do great things through it. Verse 35. One more thought out of it and we're going to 36, 37. Look at verse 35. And they laid it at the apostles' feet in distribution to each. And and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the second thing the apostles are said to be doing in the text. Do you remember the first one? What's the first thing the apostles were doing? Preaching, teaching, giving testimony. And now they got a new function, a new job. Needs are cropping up. The church is exploding. I mean, huge. And there's needs, and people are selling. This is great. Hey, we need to meet tomorrow morning, find out what we're going to do. That, that there just came in, and we've got to meet that. We've got to do our spreadsheet and see where they're uh, And don't forget, Thursday afternoon, we're going to have another meeting because that's good. Right, that's right. Where is their heart? Their heart is in teaching and preaching and testifying. But practically speaking, they need to do certain things because the money is being brought and laid at their feet. Just planting a seed, a little foreshadowing here. If you want to take this note, write it down. The more, verse 35, happens where people are bringing funds at the feet of the apostles. The more that happens, it's a great thing. But at the same time, the more the nature and the dynamics of their ministry is shifting and changing. So that soon, chapter 6, in their humanity, in their human limitations, these men are no longer going to be able to meet the demands Of what's coming in and just the time that it's gonna require. Because in their mind, we're not stopping preaching. Well, now you gotta do all that. Okay, we're gonna do the best we can with that. We're not stopping that. And it's just gonna get so much, they are not going to be able to meet the demands in their humanness. Now that takes us to verse 36, 37. We have an example. Luke writes, So this was happening. People liquidating their possessions, bringing it to the apostles, distributions being made. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. So again, we notice like five or six things. His name means son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Just as the other two verses had said. This is foreshadowing. Barnabas is going to be very prominent in chapters 9 through 15. For seven chapters, he's going to come up a lot. And so Luke's introducing him here in a good way. He's just planning a thought. There's this guy that's coming in the text. One of the things we know about Joseph, his name is Joseph. He's a Levite, and he's from Cyprus. Can I just throw this out? He's a Levite, but in the Old Testament, and again, they living at the end of the Old Testament time, the beginning of the New Testament. Levites had tribal land for all of them, but no single individual Levite was to own any land. So we don't know really the answer. I don't know the answer to that. Are we at a point in time in Israel's history? Hey, it's been 1,500 years since the law was given. Are we at a point where we don't really enforce that anymore? The Levites kind of own private. But they're allowed to own a house within the Levites' land. They couldn't own their own land. Well, this man does, and he's a Levite. Others say, well, it's pretty simple. The answer is his land was in Cyprus, and apparently you couldn't own land in Israel, but you could own land in another place, and that's what he sold. Maybe that's probably a good answer. Let's go with that when it sounds more favorable, right? Don't know how he got the land, but he has it, and he gives it. But then we notice, what's his name? What is it? Joseph. So, guys do this. This is what guys do. My son's in the Marine Corps. They don't call anybody by their name, right? Like I did this growing up. I was, I was the biggest nickname giver there was. Um. And I don't know who was first, but at some point, I mean, you could just stop and think about this in a very practical way. There's a practical aspect to everything we're reading. One of the apostles must have said to him, hey, Joseph, listen, that's a great name. Nothing against Joseph. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph's like the next to the youngest one. He's so prominent that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they like get two land allotments. That are the half tribes of Joseph. I mean, it's a great name. Jesus' is stepdad. I mean, his name's Joseph. It's a great name. I got a new name for you, buddy. What's that? You are Bar Barnabas. Bar means son of. We have Barabbas. We have Simon's Bar Jonah, Bar John, son of John. Bar means son. You are, dude, give me another name. Yeah. And, and another one chimes out. Yeah. I'm with him. You're not Joseph anymore. I am Joseph. No, you're Barnabas. What? And then they just start. Off, and you can imagine the first few times. Barnabas. Barnabas. Yeah. And he starts answering. Barnabas. Yeah, what? It's a good thing. You're so encouraging. You're a grace-filled man. The ESV Study Bible writes the following. The, hear it. The nickname... Son of encouragement fits his personality well. And then it gives three things. Not going to preach them. Just throwing them out. This man Barnabas, number one. He introduced the newly converted Paul to the apostolic circle when everyone else was suspicious of him. Have you ever heard that? This persecutor named Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, he's going to get saved. He's going to minister way up north. He's going to come down to Jerusalem. And that's where the apostles are. And the apostles are so aware of his ferocity and his intelligence and his connivingness and his cheating ways and how he would do anything to persecute the church. He's got to be faking that he got saved. He's just trying to get in among us and find out who of us and where we're staying. And and it's Barnabas that says, hey guys, no. Come with me. I'm going to get you down there. I'm going to hook you up with the apostles. And he convinces that It's the real deal. He believed in the grace of God. Second thing the ESV Bible writes. He brought Paul to Antioch to participate in the outreach to the Gentiles. There's going to be this church in Antioch. It's going to be a Gentile church. Barnabas goes, see what God's doing up there. He becomes so convinced. He, he's going to end up going over into what we call Turkey. And he's going to retrieve Paul and bring him back to minister to the Gentiles and I'm convinced that Barnabas does this knowing this guy Paul he's more gifted he's more authoritative than I am but that's all right. I want the best for the people at Antioch and he brings him there grace number three ESV Bible notes and he stood up for the the young John Mark when Paul did not want to take him with them think about that first missionary journey Paul and Barnabas are going to go They're gonna come back, but while they're out there, young John, John Mark quits on the journey. They finish the journey. Then at the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are ready to go on the second missionary journey. And Barnabas is going to want to take young John Mark. And Paul's going to say, no, he's not going. He's a quitter. And Barnabas is going to say, no, he is going. Here this man that Barnabas has uplifted and, and introduced and brought over to help, now he's actually standing and withstanding to the great apostle Paul on behalf of this young guy. No, he needs another chance. He's going. And Paul's like, no, he's not going. You say, well, who ended up winning? I don't know. Every time I look at that, I'm, I'm like, who was right in this situation? And I've got to tell you, we'll get there eventually when we get to chapter 15. I rare, eventually, I rarely come against Barnabas. And by the end of it all, seems like Barnabas might have been the one that was right. But I can see Paul. Anyway, I'm not preaching that right now. That's coming. This guy, it's like, in other words, he's the poster boy for great grace. Luke's thinking about great grace. Great, God. Barnabas always falls on the side of grace. He sold that land. God used him to do these things, and he's the poster boy. So there's the text. What are we supposed to do with it this morning? Here's what we're not going to do. I am not. I'll bet this has happened. I don't know of any situations. But I'll guarantee you through the centuries, I'll promise you this has happened. This has been preached on. And pastors in this position have led their people to go out and sell their property. And you got extra house. You got extra land. You need to sell it. And they went and did it. He said, Jeff, please tell us that's not what you're going to put on us, please. "Ah." I'm not going to do that. Oh, good. You want us to come back next week? Well, there's that. (laughs) But... I can't in good conscience do that because that's not commanded in the text. Write this thought. R.W. Stott, John R.W. Stott helps us here. He writes the following Notice the word not is in all capitals for emphasis. Stott writes that this text is not an obligatory model, it is not an obligatory, meaning you're obligated to do this. He says, this is not an obligatory model, a kind of primitive Christian communism. It's not that. But, so what is it, Stott? What are we to do with this? Hey, that's a nice little great story. They sold their stuff and they liquidated it and took care of each other for a few years. Until this famine and persecution hit and then many of them were led into poverty. This is great. What are we to do with it? It's not an obligatory model. It's not Christian communism in an infant primitive stage that we're all supposed to go out and do. But he continues, what we should do, what we should surely do instead is to note and seek to imitate two things. Here's our takeaway. We should note and seek to imitate two things. Number one, the care of the needy. We should seek, we should note the care of the needy and seek to imitate the care of the needy. And number two, the sacrificial generosity, sacrificial generosity. Not just generosity, sacrificial generosity. I mean, it's costing people. So the care of the needy and the sacrificial generosity which the Holy Spirit created. So I want to contend in our context, this is what we should take away from it. We're not in their context. We're not in a context where we're being flooded with absolutely poor people who are cut off from government funded funding. Now we're going to have poor people, and I hope our attitude is to note. The stance and the activity and the heart and the generousness and the the care toward the needy. That's what we need to take from this. The Holy Spirit put it in them. We want the Holy Spirit to put this same thing in us. But also sacrificial generosity in our context. We're not in a context where our businesses are being blackballed because we're Christians. In fact, some will do the opposite right now. For now, we're not under that. That may be coming. So what should we take away from this? Sacrificial generosity and taking care of the needy. So I'm going to fly through this. Really, I am. But where I want to finish is show you that this is not a command. But there's other writers in the New Testament who give us some hints toward things. And we just need to take a moment and taste their words. So I'm going to invite you. We'll leave this for now. And I hope you'll take your Bible. And don't don't like check out yet. Follow me if you would. James chapter 2. Go over there quickly. We're just touching it. James chapter number 2. Go there as we come down the homestretch. James chapter 2. And notice, I'm going to start in a moment. You're going to see verse 15 on the screen in just a moment. But if you have your Bible open, you have an advantage. James 2, look at verse number 14. James asks a question twice in this text. He says, what good is it? Hear that. What good is it? What good is it, my brother? I'm reading verse 14 first, not on the screen. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So taste it. Here it is. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian? Yes. Why do you think you're a Christian? And they've learned enough. Oh, I, I asked Jesus to save me. Is there any evidence in your life that you're a Christian? Are you doing any work for God? Oh, no. I am just saved by faith. I just have faith. But wait a minute. Your faith has not affected your life at all? Nope. But I have faith. I prayed a prayer one time. What James says, are you seriously going to go into eternity with that level of faith? Are you going to... You're riding your eternity on a level of faith that hasn't affected your life where you don't work for God What he's saying is, can that kind of faith save? He's implying, no, it doesn't. True faith in Christ always changes our life. Our works does not earn us salvation, but when we really get saved by faith, receiving God's grace, it is always going to change our life, and he has predestined us to do good works. If you have no good works in your life, you're not saved. You can go around saying, I prayed a prayer and I have faith. James says, that's a bunch of hogwash. What good is it? Amen, Jeff. Thank you. Verse fifteen. <laughs> Notice the text on the screen. If a brother or sister, now it gets practical. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, this doesn't mean doesn't mean they don't have. I can't even think of a. What's what's a big name brand like Gucci? Yeah. <laughs> you you could see where I'm. Anyway. If a brother or sister... This doesn't mean oh, everybody needs to have expensive clothes. No, poorly here means inadequate. It's in the context, particularly, of winter time. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, inadequately clothed, and lacking in daily food... Let that sink in. They don't have enough. When's the last time you've been cold? If we see this, a brother or sister, brother or sister, know those sorts of words, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says... You say it to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. I really hope you're warm and you get some good food. That's what I really want for you. Without giving him the things needed for the body, James says, what good is that? What good is that? Write this down. When we are able to provide practical help, God considers merely well-wishing towards someone of no benefit. What good is that? God, you know about sister so-and-so. She don't have enough to wear. Her kids don't have enough to wear, and it's cold. And you know that they don't eat properly. They don't have enough to eat. And you know this, Lord, I'd really love it if you would send them some clothes and some food. And God says, oh, I have. God, I wish you'd provide for that. Oh, I have. Oh, good. Yeah, I gave it to you. Give it to them. Oh. Oh. Otherwise, what good is it? First John chapter 3. Look at this one. First John chapter 3. So that was James. We've seen what Luke has written. Then we just read what James wrote. Now we're in 1 John chapter 3. Very, very similar. James, or John writes, 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love. We know love. We know what it looks like that he laid down his life for us. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's But here it comes, if anyone has, condition one, if anyone has the world's goods, you have the material possessions, and two, sees his brother, spiritual brother in Christ, in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And earlier in John, and afterward also, John's going to say, if you don't have love for brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not born again. He's just going to say that flat out. So if anyone has the world's good, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. He's not saying don't ever say you, don't, you love someone. Don't say it. No. He means don't only. Little children, let us not love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. If you see the need and you have it, give it to them. Meet the need. So John jumps in on the bandwagon. James says, this is what you should do. John says, this is what you should do. Write it down. Genuine love is best revealed in actions, in our actions. Genuine love. Don't just say it. Show it to them. And then your last one this morning is Paul's words to the Galatians. And I would like you to flip over there as we come down the home stretch and finish. Galatians 6. Notice verse 6 through 10. I only include verse 6. For context sake. Look at verse 6. Galatians 6. So we got our third author. Really the fourth one joining Luke. James and John. And all of them are giving us this perspective. What's our takeaway? Are we commanded to go out and sell our houses and property? Absolutely not. We're not told to do that. But we're told to take away what the Holy Spirit created. This this sacrificial generosity and this caring for the needy. Look at verse 6. Let the one who was taught the word, notice this idea, share all good things. So, some have good things, meaning material possessions. Let them share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, especially notice verse 7. Look at verse 7, because here comes the concept. Do not, Paul says, do not be deceived, because we can be deceived. The reason he writes this is because this is possible. If it wasn't possible, he wouldn't put it in the Bible. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God will never be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Hold your spot for a moment. You see on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, you have an advantage. Look across the page over to chapter 5. He just made a statement in the Bible. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? Sowing seeds to my flesh, I'm going to reap corruption. Chapter 5, verse number 19. Look across the page. Paul writes, now the works of the flesh are evident. And here's a list. Sexual immorality. Living in sexual immorality. Committing fornication. Impurity. Impurity sensuality, I like the way this tastes, I like the way it makes me feel, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. If you sow to the flesh, the Bible says you're going to reap corruption. You're going to reap, well I'm not, I'm getting by with it. I'm having a grand old time Well, either you're lost Or corruption and some punishment. Even if you are lost, corruption is coming your way. You don't just get to sow to the flesh, but the positive side. Verse 8 For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What are you sowing in your life? And he caps it by saying, Here's Paul says, Here's my takeaway, his conclusion. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Don't stop doing good. We will reap. Doesn't seem like it. We will reap if we do not give up. So then, here's his advice. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's a constant theme through all the texts we read in Acts the full number of those who believed, there was no need among them. James says, brother or sister. First John, John says, brother. The idea of brothers and sisters. Here he talks about, yes, do good to everyone, but especially of those who are the household of faith. So write these principles that we take away from Galatians 6. Simple principles. Principle number one. It's a fact. We reap what we sow. We will reap what we sow. Y'all heard me say before about last year in our backyard. Y'all heard me say that. He said, Jeff, I don't remember. Remember I told you last year we didn't didn't get any cucumbers and no corn. We got no corn, no tomatoes, and no cantaloupe. The cantaloupe did not come in last year. Why? We didn't plant any of those things (laughs) in the backyard. It was a horrible reaping because... We had no sowing. So why would I expect to reap? Good thing. No, you didn't sow. What you sow is what you're going to reap. You're going to reap what you sow. Number two, you're going to reap, we reap more than we sow. That is either really good or really scary. You always reap more than you sow. You got this little bag and all of a sudden you have these baskets full of what you reap. You reap more than you sow. If you're sowing to the flesh, guess what? You're going to reap more than you sow. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap more than you've sown to the Spirit. Third point. Agriculturally, we always, this makes sense, we always reap after we sow. We always reap after we sow. So here's this person again. Oh, I've been sowing to the flesh. That that list there in chapter 5, that's my life, and I'm getting by with it. Okay, it's coming. Corruption. Is coming, Jeff, I've been studying my Bible, trying to live for the Lord. I spend time in prayer, and it just seems like there's a constant struggle, and then nothing good is happening. Psalm 1 is still true. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, why is he blessed? Because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and he shall prosper in whatever he does, because his his fruit shall come in and his leaf will not wither. That's the truth. That's just the fact. But I don't feel like it. Okay, hang on. Because Paul says in verse number nine, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. You keep teaching, you keep giving i do this. It doesn't seem like I'm getting the results. Hang on. It's coming. Why? Because there is a God, and He's watching, and He's recording, and He's already said. So write this down, number four. No one, when it's all said and done, is going to mock God and say, Ha-ha, God, I'm the exception to your little rules. I sowed to the flesh, and I'm getting by with it. No, you won't. God, I'm the exception to your rules. I've tried to live for Christ. And it just doesn't seem to be paying. Nope, you're not the exception. No one is the exception to God's rules. What's what's Paul's advice? Here this man by this point had already seen the third heaven. By this point he's already According to the calendar and the numbers that we run in the New Testament, it's very clear. He's, but he couldn't talk about what he saw in the third heaven. So here's Paul trying to tell Graceview this morning. Listen, all I'm going to tell you: don't stop doing good. I'll promise you, in the end, you will be glad when you have opportunity do good for everybody, but especially to those brothers and sisters in the household of faith. Am I commanding you? You got to do that or that? Nope. Last thought. What we do with our money and our resources speaks loudly about what we really believe. What we do with our money and our resources speaks loudly about what we really believe. What does how the early church gave speak loudly about them? You know what it tells me? Those people really believe Jesus is alive. Those people like really saw each other as spiritual brothers and sisters. They really did. I ask every one of you this morning. How we spend our money and our resources speaks very loudly. Our words, they speak. But what speaks even louder is watch watch where they spend their money. How do you spend your money? How do you spend your resources? What does your giving speak loudly about you? Does your giving say, wow, he or she They believe Jesus is alive. They believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. They love souls. They love their brothers. They see Christians as their spiritual brothers and sisters. Their giving, says it. So I ask you this morning. When you hear there's an offering, going to be an offering, do you think this? Didn't we just have an offering? I declare. Did we take one up in December? Yep, we did. That was December. This is April. But didn't we just do this last year? Sure did. Is that your honest thought? When you hear, some, literally I just described some of you. You've heard us talk about this Annie Armstrong. It's like, oh, already? Is this, is this, this is somebody in the house. This is literally, you've, you've heard us say that you've, you've read it in print. Oh, that offering. Well, I hope some give. Hope some folks give. Lord, let some folks give. But praise the Lord, there are some that go, offering, what's the need? I might want to give to this. If that is you, that tells me two things. It tells me God has entrusted you with some resources. You realize those are not yours, they're His, and He's given you a heart that's like His, that's generous offering. Lord, can I give to that? Lord, should I give to that? Oh, and then you, He does, by the way, and then you give. It's about eyes closed just for a moment. Thank God for unity. Thank God when He displays His power. Thank God when He gives us loving generosity. I hope you'll pray for those things for God to give us unity and power and loving generosity. So, just before we pray, I've got to ask you how is your heart toward your spiritual family this morning? They had unity. Is there anybody? They may be on the other side of town. Do you need to get something right? Have a clean heart towards your brothers and sisters. Let's preserve and strive. If you want to strive, strive for peace and unity. Fight for it. And I must remind you, you will give an account for how you steward God's resources. You will give an account for it. It's a test. Your money and your resources, your possessions, they're a test to expose your heart. If you need to, ask God, God, I need a new heart. I've been failing the test. Does your giving pattern, does it say, I believe Jesus is alive and I know he's the only way to heaven and I love my brothers and sisters in Christ and I want to reach the lost? Does your giving say that? And then lastly, is there an opportunity? Paul says, as you have opportunity, is there an opportunity today or I got to think in this size group, is there an opportunity today or this coming week that you know you have, I have an opportunity to do something good. Will you do it? Because if you will, I'll promise you, if you'll do it with the right motive, you in the end will not be sorry. You will reap spiritual blessings Paul doesn't even say exactly what the blessing will be you will reap spiritual blessings father I pray that you will go with us this morning just pour this into us pray that we would have a growing unity that you would just pour out your grace of power in our teaching our testimonies our preaching I pray that you would pour out a spirit of loving generosity through us. Let it even be seen this week in our Annie Armstrong giving to send missionaries and church planners throughout North America. And then Lord, as we individually come across needs of brothers and sisters in Christ, and you've provided us with ways to meet that, God, I pray that you would just let us do it cheerfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.